turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn them up. The duo is back together. (laughs) All right, guys, are you ready for a fun guest? So with a background in brand, product, content, and tech, and experience at powerhouse companies like the NFL and Uber, we're thrilled to welcome Evan Singer, founder of Human Speak in Marina Del Rey, California, to the podcast. Evan, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I'm super excited for this talk. Um, You have tons of good experience, but I want to kick it off with the first question. How did you get into marketing? Yeah, so I guess I always, I was a unique case where from an early age, I loved the blend of creativity um, in business. My dad and my parents had their own business. It was actually pretty blue collar office furniture warehouse in downtown St. Louis. And I was running around as a kid. I actually showed up one day as an eight-year-old in a suit and told kids my age to stop like playing with the pricing signs. I thought I was like super important. My dad had an agency come and he let me sit in on the meeting. And I just loved, I've always loved creating and the power of a thought to an idea to actually making people buy something. So I, from an early age, got into it. And then in college, I was in multiple advertising competition teams, which was cool to kind of take it to, you know, you get a certain amount of money from a a client like AOL or something or Honda, and they give you a certain, you know, either a hypothetical budget, or I even did a competition with a real budget and you create a integrated campaign and pitch it in nationals and regionals. And so that was kind of my start. Um, which actually really helped because I had these physical pitch books, right? That I could go, you know, I wasn't a creative, right? I, I, I interviewed at an agency. So I started in an agency in San Diego and we did TaylorMade and Adidas golf work. So I was an account guy because I felt like I always had a knack for creative, but I didn't go to design school or anything. So I thought, you know, it's a perfect blend is to work with the client and then get the best out of the creative team. And so in my interview process, those pitch books actually were huge to separate me and give something tangible, you know, in an interview. Because I've been on both sides now. Everyone sounds good in an interview, right? And some people aren't good interviewers and end up being rock stars. So for anyone starting out, I feel like something tangible like that that you can actually show is really key in an interview. What's really cool is that you had that in college. I think like not many people get the experience to like pitch a real budget. I mean, like at least in my college, like I was an entrepreneurship major, so we did fake companies all the time, but it was not like, I knew my, my marketing classes were back and doing like, what are the four P's of marketing or like, (laughs) let's see how Coca-Cola did a national brand campaign and write an essay on it. Like, it's not like, the in-depth like you have this marketing budget let's go like make a plan for it so that's that was that sounds super cool yeah it was fun i'm just want to get into a question i like to ask everybody in this podcast is what is most marketers doing wrong today it's a good question i think it's actually pretty simple which is 
people treat marketing as let me tell you about me, right? And I'm sure you've heard people say this before, but it, it's really when you when you start realizing that nobody cares about you, you start to create some really good stuff. And I once read this quote that said, you know, you're not the hero, you're the guide. So if you think about the classic hero story, right? In every story, the hero is, you know, wandering in the desert or, or facing some big uphill battle. And they always meet some wise person along the way, some guide that kind of sets them back and helps them along their way so that they can go and become the hero that they know they would be. And most people treat themselves, their company as the hero, the customer is the hero, right? Company's the guide. And so when people start to realize that, I think you shift from selling to adding value. And if you give and add value three out of four times, when you actually ask for the sale, it's going to be a hell of a lot easier versus hitting someone over the head with eight different ads and six emails, asking them to buy and buy and buy. I want to know, I I feel like this is a big element of like dropping the ego. If you've kind of worked with some of the bigger brands, how in the world have you mastered being able to kind of drop that ego? Not that you ever had one, but if you're kind of pumped up in that kind of realm, how have you navigated that? You mean personally? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, uh, I actually could feel it when I interviewed at Uber, you could almost feel in the room, they were in the club and I wasn't, right? And especially, I'd say the ego, it's really easy to get a big ego when you're at a big tech company early, right? Because it's a wild, wild scene. Nowhere else in history could you be 24 years old. I was a little bit older when I was there, but a lot of 24-year-olds that were millionaires already. Because they were in the first, you know, 500 employees that is now, you know, back then I'm sure Uber was a 20 million, $50 million valued company, which sounds like a lot. But then once I joined in 2015, you know, it's a $50 billion valued company. So you think about that, you know, the way that that your stock multiplies like that, I think it's easy to feel like you're kind of, you know, you know what's going on. You're kind of hot shit because you were in early, right? But I think you just have to... It actually took me a while to realize because I've seen this trend actually everywhere I've gone is you feel like you know what you're doing and then you go to an entirely new world where there's a new language, new tools, new culture. And it takes. it's taken me probably a year to get comfortable and two years to get confident. And it's taken me probably 10 years to realize, oh no, I'm actually good at what I do. And so what I feel like a lot of people do is they get to a new job and they join a company and you feel like you don't know anything. And you feel like everybody else knows what they're doing and you don't. And so you sit in these meetings and you're afraid to speak up. You don't want to sound stupid, right? But now that I've got my own company, I, it took me probably three or four months as a consultant and helping my clients to like break out of this employee mindset and be like, oh no, actually I was, so when you have a job, you're hired for your opinion. And now that I have my own company, like people are paying me to give them, you know, what I think is best, my recommendation. 
And a lot of people, it, it takes, you know, a lot of people don't do that. So I think it's a balance of trusting your gut and knowing that, you know, you have to be flexible and open to feedback, but you also need to speak up when you think someone needs to be, speak up because group thinks a real thing. And, you know, I, I've been in rooms where it's been super hostile and, and it's tough to want to give your opinion, but I think you just have to do what you think is right. Yeah. I, I mean, my CMO at Service Titan, he actually told me like, and, and I, I completely agree this is an underrated skill, but internal selling is like something that you learn in your career that will boost it. Because I feel like the ability to internally sell your idea and pitch your idea is something like, instead of just telling your idea, actually selling it is, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people in their careers just like speak up with their idea, but not sell it to anybody. So nobody really buys in. I think yep. the people who go from being like average employees to like the leaders in the company are the best at taking what their ideas are and selling it to everybody in the company and getting buy-in. And I think like you probably have seen that in your marketing career too, your, your ability to say like, let's go for the, like sell the idea to the leadership team or whoever your boss is instead of saying like, I think this would be a good idea. Yeah. So it's funny you say that because Uber was actually known for, and one of my favorite things about the company actually, and a stark difference from the NFL, which I came from, which I know Emily knows well, was Uber celebrated people that raised their hand and said, I see a problem, I'm going to fix it. And then what would happen is these people that would fix a problem, saving hundreds of thousands of dollars or making hundreds of thousands of dollars for the company, they would say, oh, wow, that's amazing. Let's spin up a team for you to lead. Suddenly, you're leading a team because you fixed a problem that actually happened to be a national you know, gap that now you can scale across US and Canada. So like that was a huge skill to move up is just raising your hand and fixing problems. But to your point, Daniel, I mean, cross-functional communication and collaboration is, is everything. I mean, when I launched, I was the marketing strategist on Uber Comfort when we launched that product globally, which was, you guys haven't written it or the listeners don't know it, it's essentially the first economy plus line on Uber. So think of it as like an airline, you know, you had newer mid-sized sedans with more legroom. There was some features you could select like quiet mode and temperature controls a little bit elevated. I mean, I wrote the marketing brief for that. I worked with my ops and product and engineering counterparts to launch that globally. But I had on average, when I, I spent probably a month and a half, two months creating that brief and by the time I went through a million iterations, my boss and her boss, that doc had probably 40 people in it commenting with all the stakeholders that I had to get feedback from. And that can be jarring after you put two months into making something that you think is final and ready to go. And suddenly 40 people have tweaks and things. But I think in marketing, like probably any job, You've got to take everything as feedback and making it better because it's real easy to get defeated and frustrated. And too many people, especially creative teams and clients, you know, in, on the ad side, people push against rounds of revisions, feedback. I mean, that's just part of the game, right? So, from a mental 
health standpoint, even, you know, you got to expect that stuff to happen because at the end of the day, marketing and creative is a subjective thing. And I've seen in my experience, it's usually a good thing to spend half the amount of time debating something and put it into the market in a test basis and see what works and let the market tell you. Because I'll tell you what, I love good creative. I love good storytelling. That's the whole reason why my business is called Human Speak is I want simple marketing that clicks, right? I don't want something that you, you swipe or, or tap or click buy or turn off. But you can't get that stuff sometimes without testing it because what I think is sometimes the coolest story or the best creative doesn't work. And sometimes the thing that just tells someone what it is and super straightforward and simple converts like crazy, mm-hmm. right? So testing is a huge, huge thing that I've seen is actually not a lot of people do. When you spend three months debating a strategy and then you spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on something and it flops and you're kind of screwed. You think people don't test because they're afraid of what that feedback is going to be? Yeah, and I also think people get swept up in the traditional process a bit. Mm. Like one of my clients is a sports startup, an app that just launched this year. And we're working with an agency. They're actually an equity partner. So we're not paying them for their services, but they were treating us like a standard client, right? So two week turnaround, you know, only a certain amount of revisions here super slow at times, right? We're just wanting to churn stuff out. And I think there's this tension sometimes of wanting to be really thorough, right? And put the necessary critical thinking in place, Mm -hmm. but then also realizing that it's okay to put something that's like 75% the way there from like a quality standpoint, Mm -hmm. but just spend the least amount of time and money on it as possible and test your audiences, test your channels, test your creative, test your call to action, whatever you want to test. I mean, there's so much data out there now. Just let the data tell you and then pour the fuel on the fire. It's so, it's so much easier than try to see who's the smartest in the room because really you don't know, your customer does. What is your strategy for simplifying messages? Because I think this is like a key part of marketing. A lot of people are like, six, seven level of like where, like how high it's supposed to be, but they supposed to really dumb it down to like the, the, the most surface level. And everybody's like trying to be in depth and trying to think everybody can understand it. So I'm, a, I'm interested because you're all about like marketing that clicks. Right. And I think simplicity is what clicks. So how do you go about that? Well, you got to get really clear on what you're selling. You'd be shocked by how many people are selling things that can't describe it themselves. I went through this myself with my own business. It took me two to three months to finally land on what my positioning was because I think one of my biggest values is one of my biggest weaknesses, which is I've done so many different things. People just want to gravitate towards what do you do? What do you specialize in? Right? And so when you tell someone that you do strategy and you do content and you you do tech and you do product. I mean, it's, it's a little bit hard to understand, right? So you have to try and what we did at, at that really where this solidified was at Uber, which was when I was a marketing strategist, everything was rooted in tension. So I had to create in my briefs, 
you start with the audience and customer tension, right? And then your insight needs to ladder up to that tension. Because the only way that people are going to gravitate towards what you are selling or saying is if it catches them. And the only way to catch someone is to kind of poke at their tension. So the example for Uber Comfort was, you know, you're traveling on the road for your company. And if you think about it, we realized through research and just through my own insights and observations, you're kind of grinding out there when you're, when you're traveling for your work back when, when we traveled, right? <laughs> Seems so long ago. But think about it. You are probably having a really early flight. You got to go straight to a meeting. You're in meetings all day with people you probably don't meet with a lot. Then you go to a late night dinner with people you probably have wine or whatever. And you get back late to your hotel and you got all the emails that you didn't get to answer that day. And you do it all over again, right? And so we found this tension that people are out of their comfort zone when they travel and they put their well-being aside. They put their normal routine of exercise, eating right, getting a good amount of sleep to the side when you're traveling for work. And Uber Comfort's all about comfort, right? So my insight, my single-minded message or positioning was permission to stay in your comfort zone because it's kind of like a, a juxtaposition, right? Like as a business young professional, you're kind of taught to get out of your comfort zone. So to hear someone say, it's okay to stay in your comfort zone, that was interesting to us. And, it, and as long as the product solution, which is you don't have to talk, you don't have to worry about the driver talking to you, you can press it in the app, you can get some calls or work done. As long as you're getting a little bit of added productivity, then your company gives you permission to have a little bit more comfort and put yourself first a little bit more. Because if you're feeling better, you're going to probably be more productive, which is going to be better for the company, right? And so that's an example of like, if you hit on that pain of being on the road and putting your company first and putting your needs second, suddenly we are speaking to the business traveler in a way that not many people have done. So I think adhering to what the pain and the tension is with a very clear value prop. One, it's a very simple value prop. You know, I think that's a really good way to start. You know what's like really cool about Uber, and I think this is a good way that you just described at this comfort level was they didn't solve like the problem of taxis being faster, right? They they psychologically solved the problem of you not knowing like when your taxi was going to be there. So you yeah, can have cool. 10, you have that certainty that you're going to get a car and drive you home. So they solved like a psychological problem and their, prog- their problem was a 10x psychological problem instead of like a 10x better product like than taxis were. So like what you probably, like what's cool about like what you're saying for like comfort, comfort probably was not a 10x extra like feature, right? But it was like psychologically it was a 10x better feature because it solved like a 10x psychological problem of these travelers who were discomforted by traveling and they wanted to have like, feeling good when they were like they're at home going to work every single day. So I think that that's like a key in marketing is like to me. And I, I'm wondering how you use psychology and marketing all the time, because I think it's like a lot of companies are trying to make their product 10 X better when they can make them like a psychological problem that they're having in their product 10 X more, more of a problem to their 
end user and then it's yeah like the, the the product's 10x better for like your audience totally i mean a lot of what made uber comfort really successful too was you know we had a lot of data and research that said there's uber for business riders so basically that means you know you have an admin person at your company that pays for your rides either when you're traveling or to go home late from the office and you had a little payment option on your app I don't know if you guys have ever had it, but it's called the U for B account. So it was super targeted because we heard that a lot of these business travelers, you know, the UberX comfort or the UberX quality was hit or miss. You know, you could get a 2018 Camry or you could get a 2013 Civic that is really beat up and it smells. And you'd have these business travelers that were wanting something some consistency and a little bit added comfort, but they weren't feeling comfortable to expense, nor was the business willing to pay for an Uber black, right? So it was rooted in a real need. Took years of research results over and over to tell the product and marketing and ops teams that this was a need. But the beauty of it was we had a very targeted approach. We were going after business travelers first and there would obviously be extensions and cascades from that, but it was business travelers first. That was really important. I'm interested in like, so from your Uber and NFL days, what are like some top takeaways that you've taken from it that you've like implemented in your business? Like what are some like marketing learnings that you've got from those two companies? One of the biggest takeaways is when I first joined Uber, there was a magic to the brand, right? I joined in 2015 and this was, if you, if you did, I forget what the, um, whatever that brand assessment, you know, annual, I forget the name of it, but it, it measures the most beloved brands every year. Uber was one of the top, you know, on the list with like an Amazon and Starbucks. And if you think about what Uber was doing then, it was Uber puppies, right? The surprise and delight of pressing a button and getting a car of puppies to play with for 30 minutes that you could adopt and the money goes to the local shelters and Uber ice cream happened and we sent flu shots around around the flu season. And so I think the, the learning of that is there was surprise and delight was basically the marketing engine of Uber in the early days outside of like friend to friend referral credits. Right. And Uber was beloved for that because it was unlike any experience that you could ever have. Like how cool is that? I can just tap. It was cool before to tap a button and get a ride in five minutes. But now I'm having these like experiences and you could see it on the person's face. The person who ordered it was the early adopter, right? They were basking in the glory of making this experience happen, right? And that happened all again, all over again with Uber Eats and Instant and Uber Fresh, I think it was called at first. But then, you know, what happens with that? Well, we're growing super fast. It takes the ops teams and marketing teams weeks to prep that, an entire day to operationalize and run it. And you couldn't really measure if that was moving the needle in the business side. And at that time, Uber and Lyft were super competitive. A lot of promotions were being spent 
you know, trying to get people to ride Lyft and then try Uber. And there were a lot of dual appers, we call them, and price shopping. And so looking back, I think Uber lost a little bit of the magic. And Lyft saw that. And Lyft went much more about the emotional side. And suddenly when you ride in an Uber, you heard drivers say, well, Uber doesn't care about their drivers. When in reality, we saw in the data, Uber was that people were making more on Uber because there was a lot more trips. So they were actually making a lot more on Uber, but Uber didn't focus the messaging as much on the people running that platform, right? It was all about, it was more about the numbers, I think, as time went on. And you saw that shift back after all of the media and backlash and kind of had to flip the switch. But I think the important takeaway there is I've seen two sides, you know, both the thing that the NFL and the Uber shared was a relentless focus on success metrics and data. And I think what I've learned not to do is swing too far to the side. I always say, and I actually think I've said this in interviews before and I didn't get the job. And I I sometimes think this is why people want data-driven marketers, right? And really anyone. But I strongly believe that being data-driven and being data-informed is so different. And I want to be data-informed because I used to joke, like I'd be in a room with a bunch of ops managers and data folks, and I was the only marketer in there. And they'd be celebrating like efficiency gains in the system with Uber Pool and more matches. I was seeing quality go down and I was seeing support tickets go up. Mm. People were getting taken way out of the way, right? And the trips were taking longer and people didn't know they were going to be in an Uber pool and they're stuck in this ride. It was just terrible experiences early on, right? So I was, as like a marketing person where I'm thinking about the customer um, and the experience, I'm thinking something's broken. But as someone that might be data-driven, depending on what metrics you're looking at, you might be thinking it's, you're killing it, right? So to me, if you're employing people to be data-driven, then anyone that can read a spreadsheet or pull SQL queries, they're all the same, right? In my opinion, the reason you hire someone is for their experiences, their problem-solving skills, and their thinking to ask the right questions. So. If you're looking at data and then you say, huh, I wonder what this tells us, right? And use that to then dig in deeper and use the data to inform your decision-making, but actually not use it to make every decision for you. I think that was a huge learning for me because I saw the shift in brand love from when Uber was all about surprise and delight, deliver the best experience, super awesome and cool brand to take as many trips as possible, take as many trips as possible, drive as long as possible, right? Like there was a significant shift there. And a lot of that, I think, is because we went too far on looking at the data and not enough focus on what are the people saying? What do they want, right? And try and blend the two. Yeah, it's the mix between like actually talking to your customers versus like your your data. I think a lot of, yeah. a lot of marketers... And I and I'm on the side of data informed versus data driven because I feel like data driven decisions kills creativity as well. 
I was just going to say this a hundred percent. Cause I think that when you're using data to drive a decision, it takes out the illogical thinking of things where like illogical things to test, like a puppy on your homepage instead of something else. And no data says like you could put a puppy on your, your homepage, but it ends up converting 10 times higher. Like yep. that's an illogical thing to test, but data will tell you not to do that. Data to me forces you like forces you to be a logical thinker but nobody gets fired for being logical thinkers that's why so many people have jobs still but right if you want to take a big swing in marketing the big swing is to be something that's not in data because every a lot of people could see what's in the data you have to take something that's outside the data maybe have some points of data to inform like your swing but not like rely on your swing from that data yeah and i get it like i get it as an employer as an executive like you want as much certainty as possible, right? I get it. But the reality is, is that we live in a world of uncertainty. And if it was as easy as following the data, then human beings would be robots, right? And so I think it's, that's, I think that's the hardest thing about being a marketer is there is an art and a science to it. And it's very hard to quantify the art part of it. And, you know, I think a lot of what being a good marketer is, is intuition and empathy. Because if you can, I mean, a good marketing brief is based on having a good human insight, right? Like I didn't have surveys telling me that people were stressed on the road. Like it took personal experience, asking the right questions and understand, realizing that we were putting ourselves second to like kill ourselves for our company when we're traveling. And it takes, you know, it takes good psychology, good thinking and reflection to think about good insights. And we're so bombarded with meetings and, and calls that, you know, a lot of us don't have two hours of block to really like sit and reflect and think about, you know, what's causing pain for the customer to like get really clear on how do we connect with them. So I think that's the tough thing about being a marketer is everybody wants the growth marketer that can say, spend this much and you got this many app downloads. But that growth marketer is not looking at 70% or 80% of those app downloads churning after the first week, right? That's on the CRM or retention person, right? And so that's kind of like what I think about for my clients is I've done all of that stuff. So I think in like big picture, 360 degrees, but so many people are in their own silos. Of course, the employer wants something that can be quantified. Right. I get it. But it's the tough balance. And I also think it's a mix of short term wins versus long term wins and Mm -hmm. balancing those two, because I think even in being in all these companies, when you have companies run by VCs and stock shareholders and stuff like that you're trying to you have to hit the number every month. And that's going to that's that cause you to be number focused and forget about long-term brand play, which like you will do actions to hit that number where it could destroy your reputation for months, like spamming emails or doing those annoying things. I think you have to find the balance. Like, okay, maybe if we miss by 10% this month, it will save us like this much in the future. Or could we do something differently to hit the number that is actually 
will help our brand at the same time? Or could we give a discount to be better, like take a hit for this month instead of thinking so short term and saying like, I have to get 10,000 leads through the door or I have to get 25,000 app downloads or the, the board will be pissed at me. Yep. And look, like milestones are really important, right? To give you direction and help you reverse engineer of what you need to do to get there. But it's a great point you bring up. And I have a funny story about that. So when I was at Uber early on, the ops managers, so every city that launched started with a marketing manager, an ops manager, and a GM, right? And the ops managers were in charge of the supply or driver side marketing manager was in charge of the demand and rider side, right? So at that time, you know, you were looking at day over day, week over week metrics, trips, gross bookings, so revenue, all of these things. And well, what would happen? Well, ops managers that weren't marketing folks that aren't thinking about tone language would send 10 text messages a day to drivers And what would happen? Well, driver hours would go up, right? That's great for a city that has high demand. You're getting more trips from that, right? Drivers are getting more earnings. So the metrics are telling you, keep texting, right? But guess what happens, Daniel, to your point? You do that for three to six months, a year. Guess what the driver's feeling? They're they're pretty annoyed that they're getting texted three to six times a day to get out on the road and earn some money because the demand went up, right? And when Lyft is the one talking about how important their drivers are and the difference of that tone, it wasn't necessarily reality, right? It was true. Demand was high. Earning opportunities were high. That's good for their earning potential. But the optics of it, that was a significant issue. Eventually, that stuff all got centralized. It got pushed to the marketing managers instead. But that's the perfect example of people being short-term focused of increasing something week over week, not thinking about, oh, shit, is this going to deter and make my driver community want to switch long-term? Are they going to get annoyed by this? Right? So I always think about that example when people are short-term focused, because a lot of people don't, it's easy to be short-term focused. It's hard to be focused on long-term. And I think one thing that you bring up a good point, I mean, like when times are good and people are getting the rides and getting more things, they're happy that you're like, they're getting more money in the bank. But when that one time where like two week, like, or like when the pandemic now like is happening and they're not getting and you, 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 they remember that you text them that much and all that stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Then they like thinking, okay, did they really like, Oh, during time, then they were just using me as a customer, like as a, as a, just a product. They didn't care about me as a human. Like they didn't care enough to say like that. I I'm the, they didn't put me themselves in my shoes and said, would I want to get 10 text messages a day to my phone from my company? Like nobody, they didn't think about that. So I think like the companies that even in this pandemic are like surviving are the ones who've built a long-term brand. Like Airbnb is like a perfect example. At first they were plummeting because nobody was going, but they, they focused on brand. And now like 
they're about to IPO and their numbers are going to probably shoot up because they focus on brand and where Facebook is the opposite thing where they focus on strong product and not very good branding. And mm-hmm. now like their product's not saving them and um, their brand's not saving them. Like Instagram may be saving them, but like mm-hmm. their product is not saving them now. Well, just think about the cruise lines. Right. March, I'm getting emails from cruise lines about big discounts. Now, hey, maybe they just didn't think to turn off their CRM triggers. But still, that's like the first thing you got to do in that situation. Because guess what? You might have just lost people forever that think you're trying to push them to take a cruise when that's the last thing you want to do right now because of a discount. Like, how tone deaf can you be? Right. So, I think that's a great point. I'm interested in, so we talked about brand, but how, how do you measure brand impact? Because I think like, if, like, if you're trying to sell like to your a company, like they should do brand and like, it's hard to sell that impact. Like what are like some things you look at to see that impact in the company? So that's really tough, right? There, I don't know if there's one easy answer going back to the whole art and science thing. I think it really takes leadership to understand they leaders need to buy into that. That's a really tough thing to sell through. I mean, I've been at a company that literally spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in a research in weeks of research. And I will never forget this. I was in an all hands. And I remember hearing our head of marketing say, the big takeaway is that brand moves the business. And I was thinking to myself, are you kidding me? We spent probably a million dollars on research, weeks of data crunching to tell me that brand matters. Like I've seen the full side of that to try and convince leadership, right? To me, if you're a marketer and you don't think that brand matters, I don't even understand how you're a marketer, right? We inherently gravitate towards something just by the way it looks, by the way it feels like that's part of it. But I think if you are going to get pointed and, and specific on what do I look at? To me, there's two sides of it. On the positive side, there's referrals. To me, there's no better metric than brand, than understanding how many evangelists you have, sharing and referring your brand. So if you have a referral program, I think that's a great indicator of how powerful your brand is and where it's going. And then on the opposite, churn, right? If you have high churn, then that could be an opposite indicator, right? Because it might be taking whatever you're offering at a surface level and not really connecting with it. But, you know, the tough thing is it's not just brand. It's not just good direct response. It's, it's everything. Like to your question earlier about one of the things I've taken away from working at these various companies is, and part of what I believe in and what the secret sauce is of what I do now on my own is marketing is in everything. Marketing is in your UX, marketing is in your, your UI, your confirmation emails, your customer support macros and responses. The way they sign their emails is brand um, and marketing. It's, it's in your product. If it's a physical product, it's everything. Because all marketing is, in my opinion, is what the customer wants and putting that into the forefront, right? And so many people make the mistake of, and I saw it at the beginning of COVID, people were cutting marketing, right? And what I was telling my clients was, 
you can cut your dollars, but don't cut your marketing, right? There's still a lot you can do that. And like, how can you shift every material you have based on what this new world is, right? How can you add value? How can you create content? How can you, you know, provide discounts when they're available to like provide some relief? Like it's in everything. So I think that's important. I think, and I'll tell you this, the most successful teams I've been on have been cross-functional teams because the different perspective of having someone in the room, not saying it's always the marketing person, but a lot of times it is, you know, one person in the room that is thinking about what they want and what the customer needs, that's key. And so it's the combination of everything, I think, that makes brand. And I always say, like, try and over-deliver at every touch point, right? Like, I'll never forget this. This is a great story. I, when Warby Parker, someone told me about Warby Parker back in like 2010, I was fresh out of college. I was in an ad agency, maybe 2011. I needed glasses. And I always thought it was awkward going and I like couldn't figure out if I liked the frame when I was at a glasses store. I like always needed someone with me to like help me understand like, does this one look good? Does this one look good? Right. This idea of like getting a home try on kit. I'll never forget it. I shared it with people in my agency and like five people got kits and it's turned into like this fun thing where we sat down and everybody, if you got your box, you put on each pair and everybody, you get the reactions from the little peanut gallery of like, you know, one of these thumbs up, thumbs down. And I remember I shared my referral code and my link to a few people and a few people bought glasses. So what did Warby Parker do? Warby Parker mailed me in an old fashioned envelope with a little string tying it around with a journal, an old fashioned pencil, an old fashioned pencil sharpener, and a little card that says, thank you so much for spreading the word. We feel like you're already a part of the team. Here's the same pack we give to our employees on their first day. Thanks so much for being a part of Warby Parker. And of course, I share it, right? I, I talk to more of my friends about Warby Parker. And now they are one of my most beloved brands because they did something that totally over-delivered. Now, I get it. You can't, when you scale, you might not be able to do that as often. But I would, I would bet that that whatever that cost them with postage, that probably cost them six or seven dollars, right? I would dedicate a team to do that for people that share a link and people buy it because that totally elevated them because they over delivered into something unexpected. And that's the type of stuff I think that more companies need to think about. And to your point, I think earlier it's like the surprise and delight. And I think a lot of things that I think big companies don't do is they forget about the unscalable things that got mm. them to where they were. Like that is like an unscalable thing that's hard to do, but it's something so crucial. Like I think like even like big companies that don't respond to, or like even influencers that don't respond to comments or there's like these little things where like it's pretty unscalable, but it goes such a long way for you as a brand, just doing that, those couple, like sending a DM back to your, to mm. someone like these little things that are so unscalable. I mean, you have to get teams, like you said, a team of people to do it, but I think 
a lot of big brands or when you're growing, you forget about the unscalable things that got you to where you are as that big brand. 100%. I mean, think about Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift is a genius with this type of stuff. She does the unscalable thing consistently, mm-hmm. right? She will show up to someone's wedding and sing them a song. And she knows she, she's traveling there, right? I mean, that takes a, her time is super valuable, but she knows that doing that is going to get shared out. It's going to make that person fall even more in love. And it's going to help her connect with her audience more. So, I mean, you bring up a great point. Yeah. I mean, lasting impression. I mean, you bring up a great point, Daniel, on social media. Like that's the stuff that people don't do. I mean, when I, so I have a podcast and we've been doing it for over four years. It took me probably three years to understand how to grow social media from trial and error. And that's the stuff that works is the consistency, obviously consistent. Like I post four times a day, seven days a week, no negotiation. Like that is what we do. And that's a lot of how we've grown, but it's the commenting to every comment. It's the liking of every comment. It's the replying to every DM. It's reposting someone's tag on your story. We, we had the, the best golf meme account guy on our podcast years ago. And he said, social media is just like real life. If you interact with other people, they feel like your friends and then they want to interact with you. Right. So like all the big golf accounts and us, we are all liking each other's stuff. We're all commenting on each other's stuff. Right. And it creates like this community, this weird digital community. But a lot of people don't do that. Going back to the original thing we talked about, a lot of people are push, 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 like my stuff. I'm, I'm posting more about me. I'm posting more about me. Where the minute you start creating content that makes people want to tag a friend because it reminds them of them, that's when you start to grow. So that it's, that's a really good insight that a lot of people could benefit from for sure. And I also, I was talking to this copywriter that's been in the copywriting for 25 years. Her name is Vicky Ross. And she made this like quote that stuck with me for a couple of days is, copywriting is a conversation with your audience like Mm. i think it goes into that it's like it's not a one-sided thing right like when you're talking to your audience and you're as a brand you're talking as you're having a conversation with your friend in a coffee shop you're not take talking to at them and i think that's all these unscalable things we're talking about it's like you have to make it feel like you are in the room with that person and they're the only one you're talking to and make them have a unique moment with your brand. And good, great copy does that. Like that's yep. whether it's through storytelling, whether it's through whatever, but it's a conversation with your audience. Yeah, 100%. Cool. I, I mean, I want to leave this time to drop anything that you want to drop especially your podcast because like, I, I think a lot of people will be interested in hearing your pod about your podcast too and about your your agency as well yeah so my company human speak is kind of has two verticals one is marketing obviously marketing consulting the other vertical is actually corporate trainings i coach companies and lead trainings on stress management which has obviously been kind of something that's even more demand right now than, than marketing with all the stuff going on. So the podcast is probably more in that lane than marketing, 
because the the podcast is called The Par Train. The whole thing about The Par Train is we try and help you live a life less frustrating than your golf game. So golf is the thread, right? Everyone we have on either loves golf or is involved in golf, whether it's a PGA Tour Pro or a CEO or a best-selling author. But we root everything we do in trying to take lessons from on the course and apply them off with mindset and different lessons that you get from the game. So if you're into that, you know, if you want to learn about the power of mindset and, um, and you like golf, then check us out. Awesome. This has been great. I'm so glad that Ferg introduced us all and you're awesome. You had some great insights and thank you for being on. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. This is fun. Thanks, guys. Thank you.